0: Cool. Well good. How many of you love the new fluffy white stuff? 6 of you. How many of you are like, "Oh boy, here we go." Here we go. All right. Well, like it or not, it's here. So if you're uh if you're new to the Mill Church and we, or you have never filled out a welcome card, we would just greatly appreciate having a welcome card with uh, your information so we can know how to contact you and be in touch with you and learn kids' names and all that kind of fun stuff. So if you would, go to the Mildat Church slash welcome, the Mildat Church slash welcome. On your smartphone or you can fill out a hard copy at the back that would help us uh, get to know you since we don't always have a lot of time to do that before or after service on Sunday morning if you're new to church and you're not a Christian I would tell you that today you couldn't have picked a better day to come because the subject that we've been looking at is unbelief through the gospel of John, and the subject we're looking at in today's message in particular is on doubts. Everybody say doubts. Because I think we all have doubts, just to varying degrees. Uh, both those that, uh, that have unbelief in their heart and those who believe, and faithfully so. Uh, man, maybe if you don't believe, it's a question about the Bible itself, and you're thinking, really, like a worldwide flood? Seriously, that's what wiped out humanity. I mean, you you know, you got animals coming on board, this big boat that a guy built over the course of many months in two-by-twos, and that's how the animals were preserved, really? Really? And the Red Sea actually parted, and a nation walked across the floor of that sea on dry ground, and it collapsed just in time to kill all of Israel's enemies and Pharaoh and his army. Like, really? Like, that took place? And. Or what about the parts of the Bible that contradict other parts, you know? What what about those, pastor? And what about the doctrines like hell? I mean, that's a difficult one. I mean, people aren't that bad. and Or questions of why, if there is a loving God, is there so much suffering in the world? That's probably one of the most commonly asked questions. And we watch the news and we say, man, I don't see how could there be a loving God in this era, you know? And things be like there are or... Questions about whether scientific discoveries maybe have invalidated some biblical claim and, or maybe you feel that the Bible's teachings are outdated. Like, sex, seriously? It's just plain wrong outside of marriage? Like, why are Christians so hung up on sex? And, or even the basics, I think, for us believers and regulars, if you will. I think we I forget how strange they can sound to a new person's ears. Like, you mean a guy that was born 2,000-some years ago, you know, and who saved the world on a couple sticks that were affixed to each other? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And that one day he's going to come back riding on the clouds, and he's going to part them like a scroll, and he's going to be on a white horse to save the faithful and destroy the wicked? Sure he is. Of course he is. Some of you may say, well, actually, now that you mention all this, Pastor, I'm doubting it more than I was when I walked into the door, right? It does kind of sound crazy if you think about it. And we've all had questions. And the last several weeks, we've looked at a number of people in the Gospel of John who, like you, had questions. They struggled to believe. Today we're going to wrap up this series before we get into the holiday season, and we're going to take a look at one of the most famous skeptics, in all of Christian history, um, and that's a guy named Thomas, sometimes called Doubting Thomas. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's kind of sad for the guy that his name stuck, Doubting Thomas. I mean, we didn't call Peter Petrified Peter for you know, years after his collapse in front of this teenage girl, when she said, "Do you believe in Jesus? Aren't you one of his followers too?" Uh no, no, I've never met the man. You know, we don't give him that name, and we don't give James the name James the Judgmental, even though parts of his, uh, you know, uh, book sound that way. And 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 so let me just get down to why thomas's name has been attached to doubting just quickly here's the story mary magdalene one of jesus followers was among the first to the tomb early on easter morning jesus raised from death to life a part of three days after he had died brutally gruesomely at the hands of barbarians the romans one of the most uh, gory, brutal civilizations that has ever graced the earth. Uh, they put many people to death, not just Jesus, but he rises again and these women show up at his tomb to, to really uh, rub spices or ointments on the deceased body and nobody's there. And they wonder, well, what's going on? Did somebody steal the body? And later that morning, uh, Peter and John hear their testimony they run to the tomb and Peter goes in and agrees there's no body here and yet he sees Jesus headscarf neatly folded there on the the rock bench and and this indicates a couple of things to him Uh, he thinks to himself you know this this couldn't have been a burglar right because how many of you know burglars that fold clothes after having pillaged your home for everything that they I mean this is not something they do so who's going to rob and steal the body and then fold the headscarf that doesn't make any sense and then the second thing that that these guys conclude is that a miracle has happened and indeed it has because all four gospel records indicate that That night, Jesus appears to all of the disciples in a room where all the doors are locked. The disciples are terrified that they're going to be crucified next by the same people that crucified Jesus. So there they are, huddled, praying, fearful... Uh, and Thomas isn't there, this subject that we're looking at today. And when they see Thomas, they tell him what they've seen. And, and Thomas says, and these are his famous last words, right? These are the words that he'll go down in history for saying, uh, even though he was otherwise, you know, a good guy and led a wholesome life and legacy. And this is what he says. He says, unless I see the nails in his hands... And unless I place my finger into the mark of those nails, and unless I place my hand into his side, I will never, what? Believe. I'll never never believe. And maybe some of you have been in a similar place. Unless I meet Jesus, unless he shows up in my house with locked doors, um, i'm not going to believe i haven't found an argument convincing enough i've read some books i've heard the stories i'm just not i'm just not there well that has to be or have been the top of the list in terms of things that Thomas has regretted saying uh, just think about it you say something stupid in life group if you 've ever been to a life group or a bible study and said something stupid you've get, like got a five-minute window where you feel insecure, and that's about as long as it lasts, and I mean, I I say stupid things in life group, right, and I'm the pastor, so we all say stupid things that we're embarrassed by, but he says this thing, he makes a statement, and here 2,000-some years later, you all are listening to the statement that he said in the Mill Church in Stratford, Wisconsin, across the globe, so the guy's kind of gotten a bad rap, and I think yet another reason that I feel bad for Thomas in particular is, well, let me pose it to you in terms of a question. Was was Thomas the only one who doubted? Not even close, right? All of them expressed doubt at some point or another. John the Baptist, he got tired of waiting on the Messiah to come. And long before he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and everybody looks, and here comes Jesus to be baptized by John. Long before, you know, that, he said something to this effect. He said, are you the one, Jesus, or should we look for another? In other words, you don't look like who I thought the Messiah would look like. I mean, I was expecting more like Chuck Norris. I was expecting Dwayne the Rock Johnson, okay? I was expecting Hugh Jackman in The Wolverine, right? I was expecting somebody to overthrow this Roman government. Clearly, you're not him, but think about the significance of this. We give John the Baptist a lot of praise for saying, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But even this tough guy whose head was put on a platter after he was beheaded, for loving Jesus, even this guy who ate bugs, even this guy who killed his own clothing, he went through a time of doubting. He doubted. John tells us that James, Jesus' brother, who would go on to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, one of the largest, most successful Christian churches, who wrote the book of James, um, who was a martyr for Jesus... At one point, he not only doubted Jesus, he publicly accused Jesus of having lost his mind. How many of you know, being Jesus' half-brother, it would have been tough to believe in his divinity? How many of you, the person you slept on the same bunk bed with growing up, it would be tough to believe in his or her divinity? The person that you gave swirlies, right? Right? The person who did all kinds of bad things to you growing up. Hard to believe that person is divine. It was hard for James too. Or maybe the most incredulous of all, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that as Jesus was ascending into heaven, and when they saw him, Jesus ascending into heaven, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. Now think about this for a minute. How are you going to doubt The divinity of someone when they're ascending into heaven before your very eyes. It's like, you know, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I don't know about that. I mean. And here's the significance of of what John tells us about Thomas. His story is last. It's almost as if if he's saying, you know, clearly communicating, I've saved the best example until last. And not only one of the clearest doubters, but also one of the clearest professions of faith in all of the Scripture. So he's going to get there. He's just not there yet. Why did Thomas doubt in the first place? I think there are a few reasons. First, uh, Jesus had shattered about every category that Thomas had for what God was supposed to be like. In Thomas's mind, the Messiah would come, crush the bad guys, reward the good guys, and Jesus had juxtaposed himself in those terms, by befriending Romans and prostitutes and tax collectors. The very people that the disciples thought in a fundamentalist mindset we should avoid, Jesus hung out with, right? And and then he dies in what would seem to be weakness, apparent weakness. Um, that wasn't very God-like, um, Thomas had no category for a God that dies. Uh, Secondly, Jesus had disappointed Thomas. Thomas had started to come around to believe. And then suddenly, Jesus gets taken away and crucified. Thomas is humiliated. His friends are probably telling him that Jesus, or rather that he is crazy for believing in Jesus. Thomas had bet his livelihood that Jesus um, would 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 be the sovereign, you know, Lord and King, and it had all fallen apart before his eyes. Anybody here resonate with um, being disappointed in God? You thought God would do something? You thought God would be somewhere? Didn't appear that he was? He Didn't do things like you thought he should? Wished he would have? So Thomas says, unless I see the scars, I won't believe. Verse 26 of chapter 20. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace Be with you. Now, is it just me or does that strike you as funny? The doors are locked. You can't get in. You're in a locked room. A dead guy shows up. And this ghostly, or or, ghouly, I tried to combine ghostly and ghouly, this ghoulish soul pops in unannounced through the wall and says, peace be with you. Do you think you'd have a lot of peace in that circumstance? In that scenario, like if you were asleep tonight in your bed and you've felt something a little weird and, you know, like something wasn't quite right and heard heard a little ruffle, you know, at the end of your bed and you sat straight up and looked and I was just there staring you in the eyes. And what if I said, peace, be with you? How do you think he would respond to that? Get out of my house! You're not the man of God I thought you were! What are you doing? Why are you here? Okay, so this is odd, to say the least. And then, Jesus Not knowing in his earthly self what to say to Thomas, but knowing in his divine self what to say to Thomas says. Thomas, put your finger here. Has Jesus had an opportunity to hear what Thomas said to the other disciples? Unless I put my finger in his side, no, he has not. Jesus wasn't a witness at that conversation. So this is his omniscience. This is Jesus knowing everything. This is his omnipresence. This is Jesus being everywhere in his resurrected self. And he says, Thomas, put your finger here. Thomas, see my hands. Thomas, put out your hand and place it in my side. And do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas realizes In that moment, the weight of Jesus reading his mail. And Thomas' response to Jesus knowing what he said, even though Jesus wasn't there to hear him say it, was this. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And does Jesus correct him? Does Jesus say, You ought not worship me? No, Jesus receives Thomas worship. Jesus says to him, verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Church tradition holds that Thomas would, after having put his hand in Jesus' side, go on to live fearlessly as a Christ follower, even unto death, and dying via a spear into his own side. And he wasn't the only one. Disciples were sawn in two. Disciples were boiled alive. Disciples were crucified upside down. 11 out of 12 died martyrs' deaths. But this is how he would die. After having put his hand in Jesus' side, he'd have something put into his own side. And that would mark his last breath. So I think we've got to be a little careful with how we treat Thomas. I think we've got to be careful that we're not too tough on Thomas. You may say, Pastor, if Jesus appeared to me and told me to put my finger in the nail prints in his hands, the scars, and he, and he told me to put my hand in his side, I'd believe too. If Jesus were to pop into my home unannounced and make himself known to me and reveal himself to me, I'd believe too, I'd be there, okay. But and I would say fair enough. Um, but think about what happened in this moment. Does Jesus answer any of Thomas' questions? Does Jesus engage Thomas' intellect? Does Jesus try in any way to present logic to Thomas? No. What does he do? He just shows up. He's just there. He explains nothing. A famous atheist, Bart Ehrman, who uh, teaches not far from where I grew up in North Carolina, has said things to this effect. I think that if, in fact, God Almighty appeared to me and gave me an explanation that could make sense of the slaughter of innocent children, for example, and the explanation was so overpowering that I actually could understand, then I'd be the first, he says, to follow my knees in humble submission and admiration. But here's my question to Bart. And Bart's not here to hear my question. But here's my question to Bart and my question to you. What would happen if God actually showed up to Bart like he did Thomas? And what would happen if Jesus actually showed up to you like he did Thomas? I would posit that you would need no explanation I would posit that the very presence of Jesus would be all you need to believe. So the question really isn't a matter of am I satisfied intellectually enough to believe in Jesus? The question is whether or not you've encountered Jesus. Because nobody's argument can outweigh a true encounter with Jesus Christ, no matter how profound it is. I'll give you one example from my own life and a couple from my grandfather's life. I remember, and this is is just kind of a crazy thing, When I was in school and I went to Cracker Barrel, I worked at Cracker Barrel, so I got a 20% discount on breakfast. And I went to Cracker Barrel and I sat down and had coffee and biscuits and gravy or grits or whatever else I had that morning. And I studied God's word with a cup of coffee in the smoking section because that was the only place we were allowed to sit because not many people sat there. So I was sitting in the smoking section drinking coffee and reading the Bible And I can't explain this, but God showed up. And I have never experienced Jesus in as real and near tangible way as I did when I was sitting by myself in a Cracker Barrel. I knew that Jesus was with me. And I don't care how smart somebody is, nobody could pit their argument against what I experienced. I will tell you, my grandpa, he's a now-deceased man, the the late Glenn C. Burris, Sr. Heard his doorbell ring one night, and he went to answer the doorbell, and this gentleman showed up, and this gentleman uh, asked for food. And he and my grandmother gave him some food and sent him on his way. And the moment the door shut, the Holy Spirit spoke to my grandfather. He says, why didn't you invite him in to eat with you? You have dinner on the table. You're about to sit down. And he flung the door open seconds after the door closed and the gentleman wasn't there. He ran down the block, couldn't find the guy. Got in his car, drove around, couldn't find the guy. He swore until the day that he died that God had sent an angel to test him to see if he'd be found faithful. On another occasion, my grandfather was in the south. We have these big thunderstorms, not snowstorms like we have up here, but big torrential downpours that last sometimes half an hour, 45 minutes. And you can it's not uncommon to see on an interstate all the cars pulled over waiting on uh, the rain to stop so that you can see to drive. And he was in one of those major storms at one point, and he looked over and he just prayed. It was such a storm that he was actually frightened. And he prayed, and he said, I could see my seat, my passenger seat, depress. I see it move. It dropped an inch or two. And I continued to pray, and the storm subsided, and the sun came out, and I looked down again, and the seat relaxed back into its proper state. And I know that God, God was with me. Now, I'm not saying that you need some kind of sign or wonder to believe in Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. But I am saying that, that if you're looking for it, the evidence of God is all around you. And I don't think it's as much that you have a refined intellectual argument against the Creator as much as it is that you just simply haven't experienced the love of Christ. You haven't experienced the presence of Christ. What I would say is this. What we have called a head problem, I think, is most often really a heart problem. That is to say that we don't take academic issue with the resurrection. That's not the crux of the matter. It's not that, it's not that we logically think through. I bet nobody here could. I shouldn't say that, I don't mean to be, I couldn't even probably do it off the cuff, but I bet it would be difficult for anybody here to come up with a half a dozen reasons why Jesus couldn't have possibly risen from death. I I just don't think people are that well-versed or care. I don't think people are actively trying to form a defense for agnosticism or, uh, atheistic thought. I just think people haven't experienced Jesus. Um, we know, here's, here's why people don't believe in Jesus. I think it's because we don't want to surrender our will to Jesus. I think that's why we don't believe in Jesus. People don't believe in Jesus because we know that believing in God has implications for the way that we behave. That's why we don't believe in Jesus. Jesus. We know that a godless world is lighter on the conscience. When Thomas sees Jesus, he says, Not the Lord and the God. He says, My Lord and my God. Essentially, what he was saying, I believe, I don't have to understand this, and you get to call the shots. You're my Lord now. You're my God now. I believe now. And so many of us don't want a God. We want a divine reflection of our ideals. Whatever it is we already hold to and believe. Jesus would at one point explain, The world hates me because I testify about it, that it, that its works are evil. In John 7, verse 7. Why don't they believe? Why didn't they in Jesus' day? Has nothing to do with a refined intellectual argument. Has everything to do with an arrogant heart. With wanting to be God. With wanting to call the shots. With wanting to choose a worldview. Church, our problem with disbelief isn't as much a head problem as it is a heart problem. This is what we read in Jeremiah 29. When you search for me, God says, you'll find me. And if you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. So that experience that I had at Cracker Barrel and those experiences that my grandfather had are to be found in Jesus if you want them. If you pursue him, he'll reveal himself to you, like he did doubting Thomas. This passage means this. God's not going to play hide and seek from you and not be found. Have you ever, if you've had kids and you've played hide and seek with them, have you been the parent? who hides and who picks an absolute killer hiding spot when your kids are like three and four and five, and you never make a peep, and after 45 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes, they're in their room either crying or moping or depressed. Like, if that's you, shame on you! It's not not about you, it's about your kid! enjoying, delighting in finding dad. Jesus says, the father will be found if you'll seek him. He's not going to hide from you and have you move into despair for not finding him. He's going to say, like I do with Caroline, yoo You can hear a little footsteps running down the hall. I think he's in the heel. One final observation. It wasn't just the fact of Christ's resurrection that changed Thomas. It was feeling the wounds of Christ's resurrection that changed Thomas. What's it like to touch the wounds? What's it like to touch the wounds that were put there by you and put there for you? Did you all know that the scriptures are clear that all of us are responsible for Jesus' death? Not just Roman citizens. Not just soldiers who bared arms in the day of Christ. That our sin, collectively, as a human race, is the cause for the Father sending Jesus to save us. And so... Thomas knew that he had caused those wounds and I hope you know that you have caused Jesus wounds Blaise Pascal who anticipated the post modernity by a couple hundred years an amazing philosopher said this the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing I'll say that again it's simple but it's profound The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. What was he saying? It's not an intellectual argument that keeps somebody from Jesus. It's a heart issue. It's because Jesus' wounds are always supposed to be in front. That's why I think Jesus kept his wounds. Jesus had no, you know, I won't say he had no business as if I could say that. But, I mean, Jesus didn't have to keep his wounds, did he? He could have been thoroughly healed, completely, perfect body, stepped out the grave, completely whole, made well. Why do you think it is that he wanted to keep wounds? Did you know we, we may, if we follow this logic, get to see and touch Jesus' wounds in heaven? Why do you think he would do that? You know why I think he might have done that? Because I think that even in heaven, Jesus is going to remind us what he did for us. Here, Zach, put your finger in my hand. Here, Zach, put your hand in my side. Never forget that I did that for you. I adore you. I treasure you. You're forgiven. Welcome to paradise. Cool or uncool? Pretty cool. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray, Lord, and Christians are not immune to this. We think we're smarty pants. We just think we're right and everybody else is wrong. Lord, when the selfish nature rises up, it's indiscriminate from belief and unbelief. We all sin. We all think we know everything at times. Lord, but I just pray for those here who have yet to encounter Jesus like Thomas did on that occasion, who are demanding proof that you would reveal yourself to them. Lord, whether it's seeing their passenger seat move or a profound experience at Perkins, Lord, I pray that you would show them yourself, people who are lost. You promised you would not let yourself go unfound. but that you're willing to be discovered. And so I just pray that you would be discovered by those here who have doubts and that they would respond and say, my Lord, not the Lord, the God, my Lord, my God. I believe in Jesus' name. Amen.